0: Amen. Okay, so we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, we got as far as the end of verse 17. Um, this week, we're in verse 18 of chapter 1. We're going to be into chapter 2 in a, some uh time shortly i said chapter 2 my mistake which up to 118 um, but we're not going to be rushing when we come to the nativity passages we come to um something that is in a sense partly problematic in that we know the passages very well in the sense that we broadly know them, but we don't know them very well and that we don't know them as well as we think we do. And sometimes the familiarity of the nativity passages means that we're not uh, as aware of what's really going on as we ought to be. When we come here now to uh, verse 18, I'm just going to read through this passage, and we'll get a a feel for it. You'll be, I am sure, most of you fairly familiar with it, Um, and then we'll deal with some of the potential issues and problems here. So verse 118, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they came together, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins." Now, all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All very familiar, perhaps, and, uh, and uh, many of you will see this as a passage with no problems, and others of you will see this as a passage with many problems. And it all revolves around Matthew's quotation from the book of Isaiah. And I really need us to spend some time on this today, because... It is very important that we understand it. There are several different problems. Some of them we'll we'll deal with as we come. But the, the one that we mostly want to look at in light of the context of Matthew is this. Is Matthew using Isaiah accurately? Is what Matthew is quoting what Isaiah is saying? In other words, did Isaiah prophesy a virgin birth? And for many of you, it will surprise you to understand that many, many, many... Scholars today, including many evangelical scholars who hold the Bible as the Word of God, don't believe that Isaiah understood that he was prophesying a future virgin birth. In fact, the, the majority don't believe that. And there are three different ways of dealing with Isaiah's prophecy. The first one is the way that I will say absolutely up front, the way that I believe it should be done, which is Isaiah made a prediction, made a prophecy, and it comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The second way to understand it is something that is called a census plenior, which just basically means a double fulfillment. It means that on the one hand, Isaiah was prophesying something more immediate and less miraculous as a sign. But that also God, not Isaiah, God had this sort of underhand second meaning that was all sort of prepared and it was symbolic and it's unwrapped later on. That there a is two meanings in one prophecy. Now I want you to be absolutely clear about this as we start. I do not believe in census plenty or in scripture. I just don't believe it. I think that every case that it looks like that's a case, when you look more deeply it's not the case. And I think there are times when a passage can have two meanings when that is intended clearly by the author, human and divine, and that that double entendre is communicated in the way that it's expected to be understood. Sometimes, you know, this is the basis of every pun on the planet, isn't it? That there's two meanings to the pun, you know? That's how puns work. We, you know, back home in England, we love our puns, I can tell you. We're punning all the time. And... Puns are a way of saying one thing, at the other time you're nudging and hinting at another. And that's fine, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Isaiah giving a prophecy regarding something, people understanding it one way, and God saying, aha, have I got a surprise for you in 700 years. That, I don't believe, happens. Now, some people, many in our circles even, get around that by referring to something called typology. Now, I do believe in typology, broadly speaking. Typology is the idea that one is a representative of another. So, we see in the, in the book of Romans, for example, that Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. Is Jesus a type of Adam? In the sense that Adam does one thing through one man, sin came into the world. And then through another man, through his deeds, sin is dealt with. Do we see that connection, that typology? Absolutely. And how do we know this typology? Because the Bible tells us so. So we haven't got to play guessing games. We haven't got to kind of, you know, do some sort of spinning wheel. I wonder what this passage means. Anything like that. We know what the Bible means because we're told. We can see that typology because it's told to us. And some would say, well, Isaiah's not really speaking of a virgin birth here, but what he is speaking of is a type of another birth to come, and there's your virgin birth, and here we are, and all is good and fine and dandy. But I just don't believe that the Bible should be used that way. And I want to give you a principle here, and I think it's a fairly safe one. You, You might want to make a note of this. This is a good, solid principle for you to remember. The authors of Scripture know the Scripture preceding them better than you do. That's a pretty safe principle. Matthew understands the book of Isaiah better than any of us do. He was a student of Scripture, he himself was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but do not allow the inspiration of Matthew to somehow make you think that Matthew is just saying, uh, yeah, what was that, God? Yep, next word again. Uh, yep, okay. That's not how inspiration works. And Matthew is a diligent student of Scripture. And he knows Isaiah well, and hopefully we're going to get a glimpse of that today. So what we're seeing in Matthew, let's have a look, just before we shift to Isaiah, let's look at Matthew 1 one more time. What we see here in Matthew 1 is we see that, that um, concerning the birth of Jesus, remember those of you here the last couple of weeks, we have our genealogy, David has been emphasized, as has Abraham. This is the Jewish Christ, the Jewish Messiah, who has been promised. He is a promise to the Jews, but he's going to be a blessing to all. That's the son of Abraham bit. The Abraham bit, the promise that all the nations will be blessed, is seen through the Gentile women uh, within that um, genealogy. And the promise to the Jews is seen in that he is going to be the one who is the seed promised through the line of David. But as we discovered last time, there is the double emphasis in verses 11 and 12 of Jeconiah, which means that if Jesus is descended through that genealogy, he cannot be the Messiah because Jeconiah was told that his seed would not go on the throne. But this Is the genealogy as we saw last time of Joseph, and Matthew is going to focus through this nativity on Joseph, and that's what happens here. But there is a problem to be resolved in that if this is Joseph's line, how does Jesus get to be the Messiah? Surely he's disqualified. And we see the solution here in that after Joseph, have become betrothed to Mary. We'll talk more about that next time. We're going to come back to this passage next time. Um, That would be vaguely a parallel to our engagement here today, though the rate that people get engaged and get unengaged these days, it probably wouldn't be. You needed the divorce to get out of betrothal. there was a, there was, and, we'll, and again, we'll talk about that next time, but she is, they are betrothed, and now she's found to be pregnant. Now, we're going to talk about this later, but you know what everybody's thinking at this point. Sure, we have hindsight, 2020. we have the Bible, we know, but Joseph didn't know initially. So there is this angelic visitation that tells him that the way she is pregnant is not by cheating on him, as he might have initially supposed but rather that she is the one who is going to fulfill Isaiah 7. And that is now then where we're going to turn. So let's turn to Isaiah 7. And this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time today. We'll come back and we'll look at, once we've drawn our conclusions, we'll come back to Matthew 1 next time and look at that passage in more detail. But we need to understand a few things, because there are many in the world of Christianity, many who call themselves Christians, who outrightly deny a virgin birth. And as I said before, even in our circles, there are those who say, well, I believe there was a virgin birth, but Isaiah didn't prophesy. Isaiah didn't say that. So let's go and have a look at Isaiah I had uh, Pinky Reed there for us this morning, um, and I'm just going to um, I'm just going to go ahead a little bit and then come back because I want to just show you the problem first. So, verse ten: Yahweh spoke again to Ahaz, saying, "Ask a sign for yourself from Yahweh your God; make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven." Ahaz said, "I will not ask; I will not test Yahweh." He said, listen now, o house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So here's the sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel." He will eat curds and honey in order that he will know to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now there's your problem. There's two problems here. One you don't see because of a translation and one you can see. Let's deal with the one you can see first. Here there is a prophecy of a birth. The prophecy is a birth, and this woman's going to be with a child. We'll talk about the virgin word in a minute. She's going to bear a son. She's going to call him Emmanuel. Then in verses 15 and 16, it says, He's going to eat curds and honey in order that he will know how to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but the two kings in the context of the passage, is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. We're now in divided kingdom, Israel the north, Judah in the south, and the king of Syria. And these two kings are providing a threat that we'll talk about in a moment. And so what's going to happen is that there is going to be a boy who's, who's going to get to a certain age before the two kings will be forsaken. In other words, here's a threat, two kings... These kings will no longer be a threat by the time the boys this, is this age. This is why people have a problem here, folks. Hey, I want to give you a sign, and here's the sign. Everything's going to be all right. Okay? By the time we get to 700 years, these kings won't be a threat. It's like I think I, I think I worked that one out for myself. I think I'd figured that one. Because what seems to happen is that there's a prophecy of a birth, and then the son seems to be able to come to a certain age after that birth, before, the and by that time, rather, these kings will no longer be a threat. So that's one of our big problems we've got to resolve. The second problem revolves around the word here translated virgin. In the Hebrew, it's alma. Alma is a word that speaks of a young woman who is of marriageable age. Others have said that this is, um, that this is, uh, you know, not a virgin. It's just a young woman. She's going to give birth and that's going to be the sign. But a few things to note. Firstly, the reason that people see this as not being a virgin is because in modern Hebrew, if you go to Israel today and you want to speak of a virgin, you use the word betula, or betula rather, which means um, damsel, and, and, they, and today it means virgin. But in ancient Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew, it didn't mean that. And we could do a huge word study Trust me, I was tempted um, to show you all the usages of Alma and, and, and Betula and for you to compare and contrast. Suffice to say, there are many biblical examples where betulah cannot mean a virgin, even though it does in modern Hebrew today. And that the only word that could be used if you want to communicate a virgin is Alma. Now, the other thing to note is that Alma always means a young woman of marriable age. You know, in our modern society, it would be slightly different. Marriageable age seems to range a lot more. But in those days, it would have been someone who was sort of late teens, early twenties at most. That kind of age was an alma. Now, here, this woman who is unmarried, alma always means unmarried, is going to become pregnant and have a child. That seems like not something that God would do to create a sign, but. Suffice to say, I think virgin is the best translation. And that's, for much of Jewish history, how it was understood, though not all of it. Let's turn then back to the beginning of the chapter. Let's get a feel for this passage. It happened in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. There's your context. Sorry about the big words this morning, Pinky. You did great, by the way. Um, we, he mentions here that Ahaz is the son of Jotham, who's the son of Uzziah. Uzziah was in chapter six in the year that King Uzziah died. That was the beginning of the chronology of Isaiah in chapter six. And here is his grandson Ahaz, who is king. Ahaz is not a nice man. He is not one of the good kings. He has begun Baal worship in Israel, and he has even gone to the extent of worship of Molech, which many of you are familiar with because of the modern-day parallels with abortion. Molech Was a god where if you wanted to have a better life now, have better harvests and what have you, that you would sacrifice your children to Molech so that you would have a better life now. It truly was, in many cases at least, the modern parallel to the, uh, the, sorry, the ancient parallel to the modern day uh, um, situation with many abortions. And Molech uh, was worshipped, or Molech worship was was allowed here by Ahaz along with bar worship. Not a good king. The other kings mentioned are uh, um, Rezin, he's king of Aram, and Pekah, who is the son of Remaliah, king of Israel. And as I said, there are these two other nations. Israel has is split into two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Ahaz is king of Judah, and he oversees Jerusalem. We have the king of Israel, that would be Pekah, and we have um Rezin who is the king of Aram, and that is Syria. Now, here's your historical background. You need to know this. don't like doing history normally, but you need to know the background. Okay? Here's your background. Israel and Syria are under threat. They're under threat because the big superpower of the day, called Assyria, don't mix up your Syria and your Assyria, Assyria is the big superpower of the day and Assyria is threatening Syria and Israel and they're under threat and they're like, we are not going to be able to withstand Assyria together we're done for but if Judah helped us maybe, just maybe, the three of us together could put up a fight so they say to Ahaz, hey Ahaz how about it, how about the three of us together we withstand Assyria and Ahaz looks at his options and he says, well, the three of us could get together and we could maybe resist Assyria, but maybe we just won't. Everybody, nobody else has done much, much good at resisting Assyria. Maybe we'll all be in trouble. Or I could take the other side. I could go to Assyria. They are super mighty. Because if the three of us might just overcome Assyria, us and Assyria will definitely be able to overcome Israel and Syria. In other words, he switched sides and went to go with the big bad guys because he thought that was the safest option. That was his plan. Israel and Syria don't like that plan, and so they invade Judah to try and convince him otherwise. Or to be more specific, what they're trying to do is not merely to convince Ahaz, it's not merely to get rid of Ahaz, but it's to get rid of the entire line of Ahaz. Because if you kill someone, someone's father, and the son comes up and becomes king, they're like, well, I don't want to do what you said because you just killed my father. You know? I mean, our, our modern day um, sort of uh, movies and, and literature is just full of that, aren't they? You know, you killed my father, prepare to die, and all that kind of stuff. We don't want that, okay? We don't want that. And so what we're going to do, Israel and Syria says, is we're going to wipe out the entire line. Now, we don't care much for Ahaz. He was not a good king, as I've said. But he is the king who is descended from David, and he's on the throne. And if you wipe out his line, you've wiped out the house of David. You wipe out the house of David, and you've now rendered a whole bunch of biblical prophecy to be null and void. So God has an issue with this plan. That's the context of Isaiah 7. All right, let's keep going. When it was told to the house of David, the Aramaeans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. In other words, they've come down south and they've taken a whole bunch of land and they haven't yet managed to take Jerusalem, but they're pretty much camping around it. The end is nigh. Ahaz's plan has not worked out. And they're all shaking like trees before the wind. Then Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go now out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shea Yashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool to the highway of the fuller's field. That's relevant. If you want to know why, you can go. We've got studies of Isaiah on our website. But for now, we just need to know that, that Isaiah is going to meet Ahaz, and he's told to take his young son with him. If you want to get a picture of this, it's kind of like, Kind of that little baby's showing up and putting them in the stroller or in the push chair. And, do you say push chair? You say stroller here, don't you? We say push chair in English. But you're putting the kid in the thing with wheels that you push, and you're pushing that kid. And so Isaiah is showing up to a meeting with the king, who doesn't like him, and he doesn't like the king, and the king ha- wields the sword, and he's going to show up to this crucial meeting that the king doesn't know about and hasn't asked for, and he's turning up with his little kid, baby slash toddler in a push chair. That's the scene. Okay? and he is told in verse four to say to him, Take care and stay quiet, have no fear, and do not be faint hearted because of these two stubs of smouldering firebrands, on account of the burning anger of Rezin and Aaron, son of Ramaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has counseled evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the Son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says Lord Yahweh, it shall not stand, nor shall it happen. Okay, so here's Isaiah's message. He shows up. Baby in the buggy, we say buggy in England, Baby in the buggy, pushes them up, turns up, and there he is and he says, I, I, yeah, I can, and, and by the way, they're in a geographical location where they could probably see the armies. That's the point of that. They can see the armies and he says, yeah, I know it looks really terrible, but these guys, don't worry about them, they're, they they're, they're stubs of smouldering firebrands. They're, they're almost burnt out, their time has almost come to an end, there's really nothing here to worry about, don't worry, have no fear, nothing's going to come of it. We're all good, alright? That's it. So Ahaz is is like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Prophets just showed up with the baby in a buggy. He said not to worry. I'm not going to worry. We're all good here. Fine, let's move on. Let's not worry. But that, of course, is not what happened. And... He then goes on to say, For the head of Aaron is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered. So it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you do not establish your faith in Yahweh, you shall not be established. So he goes on to explain uh, Isaiah. This is in talking to uh, Ahaz. And says that not only will these kings not prosper, but even the entire nation... Of Ephraim that's the Israel northern kingdom is going to be shattered so it's no longer a people they are taken into captivity the northern part of Israel by the Assyrians sometime before the um, the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah and of course that comes to pass I just want at the end of verse 9 for us to take care over this last expression Okay? If you do not establish your faith in Yahweh, you shall surely not be established. Now this is where I have great admiration of people from Texas and the south. Because in the English language we have a problem. And the problem we have in the English language is that you could mean you individually or you plural as in lots of people. So the people of Texas got around this with y'all. Which, uh, which I, 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 I highly admire from a purely linguistic point of view. Now we can distinguish between you and y'all. But until we have a Texan version of the Bible, we're often left to, to sort of drown in our ignorance of what's actually being spoken of here. And I think we need to know very clearly that in verse nine, these are you singulars. These are you singulars. If you, Ahaz, do not establish your faith in Yahweh, you, Ahaz, shall surely not be established. The word established here is a bit of a play on words. In Hebrew, the word for establish is very similar sounding to the word for faith. And the idea being painted here is simply this. Look, no, no danger is going to come to Judah. These guys aren't going to be successful. They're, this isn't going to happen. You've got nothing to worry about. But there's an issue for you. You, house of David, plural, are going to be okay, but you, Ahaz, there's an issue for you to decide here. Because if you do fear, then everything's going to be okay. And if you don't fear, everything's going to be okay, for the house of David. But you, singular, if you are not going to be a man of faith, If you are not going to trust in Yahweh, if you are not going to believe what I'm saying here, if you are not going to put your trust in him rather than the Assyrians, then you, Ahaz, there will be consequences. You, singular, will not be established. You will not have that firm foundation. All will not be well with you, singular. And when we consider that Ahaz is somebody who worships Baal has worshipped Molech, maybe has sacrificed his own children to that God, then you know that though he is, in a sense, part of Israel, and thus Yahweh is Yahweh your God, we'll talk about that in a minute, nonetheless, for all intents and purposes, he's an unbeliever. He knows about Yahweh. I mean, he's like, he's like a rebellious child raised in a Christian home, going out and living however they want in the world, without any care for the things of God. He knows about Yahweh, he was raised in Yahweh, he was supposed to, whether he did or not I don't know, but according to Deuteronomy 17, he was supposed to literally write out the entire Torah, so he had his own personal copy. He was certainly raised in the in the environment of Yahweh to some degree, but he is not a worshipper of him at all. And therefore, this call to faith is a call to repentance. It's a call for him to turn away from the worshipping of idols, to turn away from trusting in other gods, to turn away from trusting in other nations. Idols sometimes are gods in the sort of distant, sort of heavenly sense, and sometimes they're gods in a very close, near, at hand, trusting in other people's sense. And he was to trust in neither, but to trust in God alone, that he himself might be established. So here is the situation, here's the challenge, two nations coming down to destroy him, he's trusting in another separate superpower nation, and therefore he has said, I'm not going to join with you, but now that trust seems to have failed, they're coming to the brink of Jerusalem, Isaiah says, don't worry, they're not going to cross the lines, they're not going to conquer you, you're going to be okay as a nation, but you individually have got a big decision to make, and therefore in verse 10, Yahweh speaks again to Ahaz, presumably through Isaiah, and says, ask a sign. For yourself from Yahweh, your God, make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now, without going into details, Sheol is is low and heaven is high, and the idea is just idiomatic. It's just basically saying there's no limits here on what you can ask for. You can ask for anything you like, and whatever you like, you may have as a sign. Now, why would he need a sign? Well, I don't know about you, but if I'm a king, and I'm kind of surrounded by an army that's about to break down the walls of Jerusalem and a, and a guy who's a pro- strange prophet type figure with a funny reputation shows up with his kid in a pushchair and he says to, he says, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. I kind of need a sign at that point. And God being gracious offers Ahaz a sign. Ahaz is in this weird situation. We can't have exact parallels in the New Testament because Yahweh is your God. Why is he your God? Because you're the king of Judah. Judah is God's nation and you are the king of that nation. You are a Jewish person. You're descended from David. He is uniquely your God. Your nation is God's nation and yet at the same time he is an unbeliever he is separated from God by his sin and he needs to be saved there's no exact parallels in the New Testament that's just one of those quirky things as we read the old but you he is saying and saying Yahweh your God by the way he's nudging to Deuteronomy 6 we'll talk about that in a minute but he's saying Yahweh your God is offering you right now a sign he's offering you a sign and it can be anything As high as you like, as low as you like, anything in between, you can have whatever you like as a sign. Ask what you want, and God will do something that's a miraculous sign to prove to you that he can be trusted. And Ahaz says, look at this. I will not ask, and I will not test Yahweh. Folks, doesn't that sound very spiritual? Oh, I won't test Yahweh. I won't test Yahweh. Why? Because, you know, you shouldn't put Yahweh to the test. Does that sound familiar? We're going to be there in a few months. We're going to get to Matthew, go through chapter 1, get to chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. In chapter 4, we have Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Satan comes to Jesus and he says to him, you know, if you throw yourself down, then the angels will pick you up and God will preserve you. And Jesus says in response, you shall not put Yahweh, your God, to the test. So is is Ahaz not doing a good thing here? Let's be absolutely clear. Ahaz is not doing a good thing. There is here, in this place, he is being offered a sign so that he would know that God can be trusted. And he is essentially saying, I don't want to trust God. Because if God gives him a sign, and it's a miraculous sign, and it comes to pass... Then what's Ahaz got to do in response to that? He's got to worship Yahweh. He's got to stop worshipping false gods. He's got to stop trusting in Assyria. And he's got to worship Yahweh. And you know what? There's so many people around this world, around this nation, around this city. There are so many people who know God. They know about Jesus. They know who he is. They know he died on the cross. They know he rose again. They know that it was for their sins. They know these things. They have an intellectual understanding of the faith. Perhaps they were raised in a Christian home or they have Christian friends or Christian family and they know but they won't bow the knee because they want to be in charge of their own lives. And no amount of spiritualizing and religiosity and Bible quoting can get around this. And in this nation there are far, 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 far too many people who don't realize how narrow the gate is. And how being raised in church and knowing John 3:16 and having gone up to an altar call when you were 12 years old does not cover for the fact that you are on the throne of your own life and God has never had that place. Ahaz rejecting the sign is him rejecting the offer of faith. And to make that even clearer, we're going to do a bit of inception here. We're going to go to a dream within a dream. What he's doing here is quoting Deuteronomy 6. So I want to briefly, keeping your place in Isaiah 7, I want to look at Deuteronomy 6. It's a really important passage of scripture. You'll find it in your pew Bibles on page 252. Just to ease swiftness of getting there, 252. And this is one of the most important passages in all of the Torah. Because it contains that verse that is so important to Israel, even to this day. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And this is a passage that speaks about the importance of loving God, about the importance of loving their God and not other gods. I want you to see the repetition. Verse one, the commandment, the statutes, the judgments which Yahweh, your God, has given you. You might fear verse two, Yahweh, your God. And hence that leads to the statement that we read in verse four, Yahweh is our God. Verse five, verse five, Yahweh, your God. And it talks about the importance of commanding and teaching these words. And then in verse 10, then it will be when Yahweh, your God, notice the repetition, brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, they're now in that land, to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you great and good cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things you did not fill, and hewn systems which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you will eat and be satisfied. Then beware. Lest you forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. That's a warning, by the way, just as an aside to us all. Why, if God loves us, does he give us trials? Oh, he gives you trials because he loves you. Because when we don't have trials and we get comfortable and we get cozy, then we have a tendency to ignore him and to forget him. When we don't have an immediate pressing need to cry out to him. And he's saying, beware when you come into that land flowing with milk and honey. When you come and you have all this blessing, beware that you forget him. And then verse 13, Yahweh your God you shall fear. And him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not walk after other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For Yahweh, your God, is in the midst of you, and a jealous God. Lest the anger of Yahweh, be, Yahweh your God, again twice in one verse, be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. We're up to verse 15. I lost count, but there were lots of Yahweh, your gods, weren't there? And the whole point is, you're going to go into this land, you're going to be blessed, everything's going to be great, and there is a danger, when you're aside from trial and testing, that you are going to, you're going to slip. And that you're going to have these other gods of the nations around you, and that you will worship them. So I just want to emphasize that Yahweh is your God. Who's your God? Yahweh. Yahweh's what? Your God. Repet- repetition, 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 repetition. He is your God, do not worship other gods. Now, context, look at verse 16. You shall not put Yahweh, your God, to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now we could go real inception here and we could turn to Exodus 17 and we could do a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream. But I will just reference you to Exodus 7 and tell you that that is where the Israelites having come through the Red Sea, having seen the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea, they now come to the wilderness and they are saying, there's no water, you brought us here to die. And Moses strikes the rock and water comes from the rock. So so the God who can take water and make it part so you can walk on dry land, and the God who can take that same water and use it to drown Egyptians, that God can't help you with water, huh? That God did all of this just, to, just to, so you can die of thirst. Okay, that's what you're thinking here, is it, Israel? And that was the test. You don't need to turn there because it will take too long. But I just want to read to you um, Exodus 17.1. They say, they contended with Moses, said, give us the water that we may drink. And Moses said, why do you contend with me? Why do you test Yahweh? Testing Yahweh is not saying, oh, I don't want to have a test that you just offered me. I'm going to be super spiritual and say, oh, I don't need a test. Don't give me a test, because I don't need a test, because I don't need tests test, because I'm not going to test Yahweh. That's not what's going on here. The testing of Yahweh is worshipping other gods, not trusting in him, but putting your trust elsewhere. In Exodus 17, they gave up trusting Yahweh. Yahweh gave the 12 plagues of Egypt, he heard their cry, he brought them out of the land, he destroyed Pharaoh's army after letting them pass through dry land in the Red Sea, and they still don't trust him. And now they've come to the land that's been promised them, and there is this incredible danger that they might end up worshipping false gods here in Deuteronomy 6, and he says, don't test me. I'm your God, they're not your gods, don't test me. It's kind of more, it's less of a don't do something that would prove that what I'm saying is true, and more of a parent saying to their young child, now don't you test me. It's, it's a it's a don't rebel against me, place your trust in me, you can trust me. That's Deuteronomy 6. So when we go back, and you can turn back now to Isaiah 7, do you see the ridiculous irony of what Ahaz is saying, I wonder, by the way, as an aside, whether the reference to Yahweh your God offers you a sign, triggered something from his childhood, Yahweh your God, oh that sounds familiar, maybe the 15 times or whatever it's mentioned in Isaiah 6, and he's thinking of Isaiah 6, ah, don't, don't test Yahweh your God, maybe that's what's going on, I don't know. But the irony is, is that Ahaz is the very picture of someone testing God. The man who says, you shall not test God, I'm not going to test God, is a man who is the epitome of testing God. If you went to a dictionary in Isaiah's day and looked up testing God, there'd be a picture of Ahaz. That's how much he was testing God. He was the God tester. Why? Because he hadn't trusted in Yahweh and he'd done exactly what Deuteronomy 6 was warning against and he placed his trust in other gods. And right now at this time, the only reason that those armies are there on the brink of the land is because he's placed his trust in Assyria. And he turns down the offer of a sign. Getting to the virgin birth, don't worry. Context is great. Always helpful. So he says he wouldn't test Yahweh. So now in verse 13, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? He said, I don't want that. I don't want that. I'm not gonna have faith in Yahweh. I don't want a sign. I don't want you to prove it. I'm just not gonna do it. That's essentially what he's saying here. He is rebelling against God while, while pretending that he's doing the right thing. Man, doesn't that happen all the time? What's the, what's the most well-known verse in, in the lips, on the lips of unbelievers today? Is it not, judge not, lest you be judged? And are they not judging us as they use that verse? It seems like nothing changes in history. Irony abounds. So now he has rejected it. He is not going to be established. But let's be clear. The house of David is going to be okay because God is a covenant-keeping God and he has covenant promises that he will never break and that will not fail. So, Ahaz has landed himself in it. He will not be established. He is going to come to, to harm. But for the house of David, all will be well. Then he said, verse 13, Listen now, O house of David. Have you s- seen the shift here? He shifted from talking to Ahaz to talking to the house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you? This is now plural. Plural to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of God as well. Now here we have a little a little bridge as it were. Because Ahaz has done something wrong, and now it's being viewed that the whole house of David is testing God. Why is that the case? Because that's the case because where your leaders lead you, there you go. Pick your leaders carefully. If you think I'm horrible, don't come to this church. Because I'm pastor. Be very careful who you choose to go in a place of work to be your boss. And ladies, especially younger ladies, especially younger ladies who aren't married, be very careful who you pick as your husband. And so we need to understand that because the house of Israel, the house of David rather, the house of Judah more specifically, under this king... Because they're under this king, this king making bad decisions impacts the entire nation. And if you think that's unfair, you just have to pick up your Bible and read the entirety of Israel's history. King does bad, bad things happen to nation. King does good, good things happen to nation. It is just consistent uh, uh, throughout the Old Testament because that is the promise of blessings and curses in the Mosaic Covenant. So... Here we have Israel, uh, Judah rather, more accurately, again, um, being viewed as testing God because of what's happening. So it's not going to be good, but he says, Therefore, the Lord himself, Adonai, mighty, the one who is in charge, will give you a sign. Now this is absolutely crucial, 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 crucial. The text and Bible will be helpful at this point. People say Ahaz was asked for a sign, he didn't want it, but God gave him a sign anyway, and he gave Ahaz a sign, the sign is the woman's going to give birth, by the time this kid gets to a certain age, these kings won't be a threat, and therefore that will be a sign for him to trust God in the future. You'll see these kings aren't a threat, oh that kid, he's only this age still, now therefore I know in future I can trust Yahweh. That's what seems to at first glance be going on. However, that is not what's happening, y'all. Because Ahaz was promised a sign, you singular, he rejects that sign and God has rejected Ahaz But he's not rejecting the house of David and the house of David is now being addressed and he says therefore the Lord is Going to give y'all a sign The whole of the house of David is going to have a sign Behold this is the sign the Alma, the Virgin, will be with the with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which, as we told in Matthew, meets, means God with us. The interesting thing here is that often in your Hebrew Bible, often when you're reading in English, the Old Testament, you'll see the this and the that, and there's no the in the original, it's just translated that way for sake of good English. But when the word the is there in the original, it's normally making a point. And this is the virgin, the Alma. Wh- which one? I'm going back in chapter 7, I don't see any reference to uh, any, any young women. Going back to chapter 6, don't see any young women. Going back to the beginning, don't see any young women. So what is the young woman that he's referring to? Is there a young woman that would be in their minds? Is there a young woman that Jews would think of? Is there a young woman that is particularly important in Jewish history? Is there perhaps a Genesis 3 verse 15 and the promise that there will be the seed from a woman who will crush the head of the serpent and he will bruise his heel? There is this woman that will give birth to a seed and that seed has become one of the most important parts of biblical revelation going from Genesis 3.15 right the way through Genesis 12 to the Abraham being the chosen nation and other nations of course being blessed. And then we go through go through Isaac, then we go through Jacob and then we go through Judah by the end of the book of Exodus and then we go through to the house of David and I'm basically rehashing the last two weeks of sermons at this point. You get the point the seed line is really important because there's one who is promised who's coming and the one who is promised is coming is coming from a woman and that I believe is the reference here because there's no other woman in the context and the woman will be with child and bear a son and because she is unmarried this is something hereby unrevealed in scripture at, at this stage because she's an unmarried woman the word in Hebrew used previously of the seed of the woman just means a woman as opposed to a man. Now we know she's unmarried. Now it becomes clear that this is something that, A, is still going to happen, you're still going to have your seed, he's still going to defeat the enemy, we're still going to have redemption from sin, you're still going to have your kingdom, and you're still going to have your king... And the sign to the nation is going to be that this birth will be miraculous because the woman's going to be unmarried. And unless you believe that the sire is going to, Messiah is going to come through through you know, an illegitimate child, then this clearly refers to a virgin birth. And that's the only way it could have been communicated in biblical Hebrew. And so what it is, is that there will be a child who will come from a virgin And she will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Isaiah is now answering in chapter 7, he's beginning to answer the issue that arose in chapter 6, which is how does a man who is unclean have his lips touched, Isaiah 6, and be declared to be righteous? How does atonement from sin happen? How is that possible? Well, Isaiah 7 tells us that there's going to be a virgin birth. Isaiah 8 and 9 goes on in this section called the book of Emmanuel. And the, it goes on and on and it tells us more about this one, this child, who is both God and man, who is king. And when we get a little bit later on in Isaiah, he's, uh, he's referred to as Emmanuel in chapter 8. And we're told that uh, verse 7 of chapter 9, he will... It, there will be no end to the increase of his government of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom, to establish and uphold it righteousness and justice, and from then on and forevermore. And he is called, in the verse before that, wonderful counsellor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He's called God, and yet he's born. How is that possible, that he's God and man? By the way, if anyone tells you that the deity of Christ, the deity of the Messiah, was something that was invented by the church... I mean, it wasn't even something that came in the New Testament. This is 700 years earlier, and we are seeing in an Isaiah, and again, I've taught Isaiah, the early chapters, it's on the website, you go and have a look, and we see very clearly the deity of the Messiah portrayed by Isaiah, and this is the beginning of it. So there is going to be a birth of, uh, of a, uh, a son from a virgin, And she will call his name God with us. The name is going to come from God ultimately. It means God with us because this child will be God with us. Something that is clarified just a little later in chapter 9. He will eat curds and honey and all that he will he will know to refuse evil and choose good. Rever- refers um, in, in passing quickly to a to, uh, pov- state of poverty and refusing evil and choosing good. And so Jesus is going to have a poor birth, a poor upbringing, but he will know what is right and what is wrong. This is a reference back to Isaiah 5.20. Woe to you who call good evil and evil good. Jesus will not have that problem. Four, before the boy will know to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now, I understand. When he says, the boy, you might think he's referring to the one who's just been given birth to. But no, the connection is the good and evil. Jesus, the Messiah, will know the difference between good and evil. There is in the Jewish frame of reckoning a point in a child's life where they know the difference between good and evil and they are responsible for what they do. If you have a child of four or five and you're a Jew in ancient Israel and that child does wrong, who's responsible? You are. But there is a point, yeah, approximately the age of, what we would say, the age of puberty, that kind of age, to, we have, they would have a ceremony called the Bar Mitzvah which today seems to just be an excuse for rich Jewish kids to have nice big parties for them but, but back in the day was far more serious and was a case of reciting the law and knowing the law because at that point in your life and parents this is a this is a warning to you that when your children hit puberty things get difficult and they, they are responsible at that point for how they live. And they need to be trained to know how to live by that time. That's not the start, that's the end. And at that point, they now become responsible to keep the law. You're not responsible for them keeping the law, they're responsible for keeping the law. That kind of age. So there's an age where children basically are able to discern good from evil and are responsible for doing so. They should know. Okay, And Isaiah says, before the boy will know to refuse evil and choose good. And which boy is he referring to? Well, there is a son that is going to be given as birth as a sign, but he's not here yet. He says, before the boy. Do you remember, do you remember the scene that we had? Isaiah showed up with what? His baby in a pushchair. His son, who is a boy. You're catching my drift now. Called Shea Yashub. Which means a remnant will return. That's a funny name to give your kid. I know lots of you like Bible names for your kids. You know, David, Grace, Carissa, things like that. You know, you, you like these Bible names. May I just recommend to you, Shea Yashub? Really good Bible name. If you have a boy, Shea Yashub. It's underused. You won't, you won't have much confusion in the playground. Anyway, Shea Yashub means a remnant will return. And the point of this is this. That God will keep a remnant. And a remnant will return. And no matter how bad things get for Israel. God is going to keep his promises through a remnant of Israel. Always. Always, 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 always. You might be unfaithful, house of David. But God will always be faithful. And so here is here is a boy called Sheer Yashub. To remind you that God will be faithful. And before this boy. Shea Yashub. Reaches the age of knowing good from evil, which the Messiah will do. He will know good from evil. And before this boy is responsible to do that, he, before he comes to that age, rather, they, the kings, will no longer be a threat. The two kings who you dread will be forsaken. And so the promise, I think, is clear. That Ahaz was offered a sign, he rejects the sign. The house of David is given a sign, and the sign to the house of David is that there will be a virgin birth. You say, well, that's still 700 years later. Yes, but look at the time 700 years later. Where's the king of Israel at the time of Matthew, at the time of Jesus? Where's the king of Israel? There isn't one. They haven't had one since the Babylonian captivity. There's no kings, no descendant of David on the throne. Has God forgotten his promises? You were promised a sign. Here it is, a virgin birth. Here's your king. The kingdom and its promises have not been forsaken. There is a promise to the house of David that they have not been rejected and that they have not been cast off. Verse 17, Yahweh will bring on you, now we're back to you singular. He will bring on you Ahaz, on your people and on your father's house days which have never come since that day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. There is here a promise of harm to Ahaz, harm to his family and harm to the nation because of him. And it will come about at the hands of the very one that he trusted in, the king of Assyria. And that plays out later on in the book of Isaiah. So why don't we then now turn back to the book of Matthew. It was really important to me that we took that time today to do this. I know far too many uh, Christians think that that the virgin birth... You know, you know. Can we trust it? Did Isaiah prophesy it? And I think more concerning in our circles is that this passage has become an excuse for for many people like us who believe in the Bible, believe it's the word of God, to think that the Bible will have these double meanings. That God says something, and Isaiah didn't really understand it, but there was a sort of hidden spiritual meaning. The Bible says what it means, and means what it says, and we can trust the Bible. And sometimes we just got to dig a little bit deeper. And you know what? If you look at it and you, you can't dig any deeper than you can currently dig, and it doesn't seem to make sense to you, trust him. Just like Ahaz should have trusted him. Trust him and trust in his word. And as I said, we'll come back to Matthew 1 next time, but I hope we can see that when this is said by Matthew, this took place in order to uh, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew adds a translation, which translated means God with us. And the reason he does that, obviously, is because in the very next verse, we're told his name's actually going to be Jesus. And so the point is his name, which in the Hebrew Uh, consciousness meant, meant who he was, his attributes, his person. That Jesus is God with us. And there's so many threads tied up in this one prophecy. In the book of Isaiah, we have in chapter six this problem in that here's Isaiah and he's, uh, woe is me, I'm a man, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. And what's gonna happen? And God redeems him. And how does that happen? And how can that happen for Israel? And then Sheer, Yashub and Isaiah is the beginning of the story of the redemption of Israel. That there is going to be one who is a son. He is going to, that's chapter 7, he's going to be Emmanuel, chapter 8. He's going to be mighty God, chapter 9. Government's going to be upon his shoulders. And there is going to be this one who is a king. But then by the end of the book of Isaiah, the one who is the king is also the servant. And the servant is going to suffer and he's going to die, not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. And thus the issue of how does one who is unclean, woe is me, be declared to be righteous? How is he made holy? How can he stand in the presence of God? And that is answered in the book of Isaiah by the substitutionary death of the Messiah. And so Matthew is bringing all of this from Isaiah into his gospel, so that we know from the off that this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who fulfills their prophecies and brings good news to all nations and all Gentile people. But already there is a note here there is an implication, a nudge, if you like, by the context of Isaiah 7, that this is going to be a matter of faith. For Rahab, for Tamar, for uh, Bathsheba, for the women of, the, pro, of the, the, the genealogy here, that for them, their place amongst the people of God was one that came not by birth, but by faith. There is already in Matthew this reminder to the Jews that the good news goes to all nations, but it's going to happen to both the Jews and the Gentiles through faith. Ahaz didn't have faith. He quoted Bible. He said things that made him sound grand, but he didn't trust God. He didn't have faith. And he fell. But God's faithfulness was proven true. And this, this prophecy shows that, in that Christ was born of a virgin. And so as we close today, and as I say, we'll come back and look at some great details in that passage that we haven't got time for, we'll do next time. But let me just end with this, with this thought. Are we people of faith? Being somebody who goes to church on a Sunday does not make you a person of faith. Being someone who knows a few Bible verses, to quote, out of context perhaps, does not make a Christian either any more than, you know, than it does for an unbeliever who can't do those things. John chapter 3, well in John chapter 2, end of John chapter 2, The people believed in Jesus because of the signs that he did. And then the text tells us in John 2, but Jesus didn't believe in them. What John 2 is doing is setting up the fact that there is a type of faith that is not saving faith. There's a type of faith that says, hey, I like me a bit of Jesus. I like listening to those, 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 those kind of worship songs from church. I, I can quote a few verses. I go to church, you know, not every week, but near, but fairly regularly just to make sure that I feel like I'm safe and I'm one of the, one of the tribe. And, you know, you, you're connected to Jesus in various ways. And if anyone said to you, do you believe in Jesus? You say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Well, that's what the people in John 2 did as well, but Jesus didn't believe in them. In most versions it says Jesus didn't trust in them, but the Greek is the same word. And he says he didn't trust in them, he didn't believe in them, because he knew the heart of man. He knew what man's heart was like. And then he said, now there was a certain man, and this man is going to be the illustration of the kind of man who has a faith, but is not saving faith. And that man is called Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night, and he comes to Jesus and he says, we know that you're from God. Because of the signs that you do. Just like those other guys in John 2. We know that you're from God. I have a faith. I believe that you're from God. You're a rabbi. You're a teacher. You've been sent by God. I have faith of a kind. And Jesus says to him. You need to be born again. You who was the most religious of all people. You who was the teacher of Israel. Which by the way is a, is a Jewish idiomatic expression. That was used of the head's. Of rabbinical schools he was someone training other people to be rabbis so when he comes to Jesus says hey rabbi he's talking down to him he trains rabbis for a living and Jesus says you're the one who trains rabbis and you don't know this you need to be born again pal you need your life to start again afresh you need to have your old life to be dead and your new life to be new you need to be dead in your you're dead in your sins you need to be raised to newness of life and the context of John 3:16 which is horrendously taken out of context horrendously because everybody knows it and no one knows the context for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life and so the person who was raised in church, who went and followed an altar call when they were 12 years old, when someone was playing the piano in a minor key, just to you know, play on the emotions, and they kind of came forward, or, or put their hand up, oh I see that hand, I see that hand, all that. They did all of that, and they came forward, and they made a commitment, maybe they signed a card or something, but they did something that says, that's, that's me, I became a Christian. And there was a moment, and they had this background, they have this association with Jesus, and you were to say to them, do you believe? And they say, yes I believe. And therefore I'm okay, John 3.16. But the whole context of John 3.16 is that there is a kind of believing that doesn't save. And there's a kind of believing that does save. And in the immediate verses preceding John 3.16, verses after talking about the bronze serpent in the wilderness and how they had to look to the bronze serpent... Snakes came into the camp. Snakes bit the Jews. The Jews were dying. And they're like, what do we do? What do we do? And God says to Moses, make a bronze serpent. He puts the bronze serpent up. And they look at the bronze serpent and they don't die. You don't get to say, I'm sorry, God. Please, God. No, God. I like you, God. I'll listen to worship music. I'll go to church. I'll read my Bible. Blah, blah, blah. There's only one thing you get to do. You have to look at the serpent. You have to look at the one who has been lifted up. And the lifting up of Jesus is the lifting up of him at his death and his burial and his resurrection. And the lifting up of him to be established as the one who is above all things. You've got to bow before Jesus. If you believe intellectually that Jesus came as a man, was crucified and died and was buried, and was resurrected on the third day, then congratulations, you're in a part of a very large group that includes the devil and the demons. But if you bow that knee before him, and if you say, I believe in the sense that I have my trust in you, I will not be deterred by the Assyrians. I will not be deterred by Syria and and Israel. I will not be deterred by those who will come against me. I won't be deterred by by the government and, and, and by Caesar. I won't be deterred by those who would mock my faith. I won't be deterred by those who will cancel me. I won't be deterred by those who will cast me aside. I will not be deterred. I will stand and I will trust in you and you alone because who else has the words of eternal life? Who else do I turn? And so, my friends... As we close this morning, let us again, once more, I hope not for the first time, but maybe it is, but let's once again bow the knee before Jesus, God incarnate, creator of heaven and earth. Nothing was made which he did not make, who yet came as a child born of a virgin, that he might die in our place for our sins, so that by placing our trust in his death, in our place for our sins and his subsequent resurrection, proving that he was who he said he was. That as we place our trust in him and bow the knee before him, putting aside our sin and turning to him for a new life, that he might lift us up. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the glorious promise of the incarnation and the virgin birth. That you kept your promise made centuries earlier to the house of David. That at a dark time in their history, with no king upon the throne, that you would give them the king that you promised. And though, as we will see in Matthew, they rejected their king, we have accepted him. By your grace, you opened our eyes that we would see his glory and today again may we bow the knee before him he may be gentle Jesus meek and mild he may be the baby in the manger but he is our king he is the judge of heaven and earth he will establish his kingdom and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Yahweh God incarnate. And so we bow the knee before this mighty Jesus today. May we cast aside our sin, our compromise, our distractions, and may we once again live for him and him alone. Empowered by the Holy Spirit that he gives us in response to our act of faith that we might live for him, no longer pursuing our own desires, no longer living as if we were on the throne, but bowing the knee to him who truly is. Amen. Mm -hmm.